I'm your host, Jeff Dawson, for another episode of Dawson's Domain, where we cover the spectrum of life's pressing issues and events, from politics to relationships, sports to horror, alternative history to poetry, humor to baseball coaching, and everything in between. Texas. Temperature's not too bad. It can always be a little better, but it is March. We're just coming out of February. And as I told many of my associates, winter's done. And I said, no, it's not. We've got at least one more day. Well, next Friday, I think Thursday through Saturday. Yeah, it's going to be down the high 20s. So we're not out of the woods yet. But that's just the way it goes here. We don't have a brutal winter. It's just intermittent, but when it hits, it's like, oh, good Lord, this is just too cold, too cold. And we could have some special guests on later on in the show to help discuss politics. One would be Carrie Allen, who is a longtime friend and Steelers fan, which I forgive him for. And the other one is going to be Robert Smith, who is a retired Fulbright Colonel of the United States Army. And we've been chatting back and forth just a little bit on really the tactics and what's going on in the Ukraine, not the media hype, not, not, not everything they're talking about, just from a ground situation and tactical situation, how this is playing out. And that's going to happen around three o'clock or so we'll just see how that works out well it was friday night and it was dunstan's night i didn't make it last week because i finally had my long-awaited inguinal hernia surgery and they did a bang-up job got in there at 6 45 and they threw me out at 11 50 a.m and I had thoughts of going out Friday night. Well, yeah, we're all a lot of brain fart now and then, and that would have been mine. I, I was loopy from the anesthesia until sometime Saturday afternoon. Of course, many thought, well, there's no real change. He's always like that. The only plus is he's not talking and giving us grief. So they gave me as much grief as possible until the drugs wore off, knowing that sooner or later I would return. But it's going to be, I'd say we're probably 70% healed. I did not get the pain medications. I don't like taking codeine or any of that other crap because it just, one, it constipates you, and two, you just, you feel like you're on another planet and some days I probably should be might be more beneficial, <laughs> but that went very well. So it was good to get out and it was quite the gathering, the long awaited arrival of James and Maureen Witt finally happened. They have been very busy. There was hopes that they could make it to town 
before Bears passed on because he really wanted to show James all of his photos from Russia, his car collection. But events transpired. They weren't able to make it. They were saddened at his passing. But he really did. He was would always ask me, are they coming into town? Are they coming into town? I said, I don't know. I don't know. I'll ask Patty. I'll see what's going on. Because he really wanted to share his life with James. And all of that stuff has been since shipped to California. And that's something else I'm going to get into. And of course, Patty and Jerry were there. And Patty finally got her long-awaited much disturbed, way too long, two-month hug. The only problem is she won't stop talking. Do you want a hug? Are you going to give me a hug? Are you going to? And it's just like for the next five minutes. No, no, the time has passed. You missed your window of opportunity. I'm going to sit down. No, no, you are not. And she jumps up and comes running after me. It's like, ah! Go away. Go away. But it was a very good time. And of course, her hubby just laughs at her because what else can you do? She is full of energy, full of happiness, and just wants to spread it around. But my only problem is, you know, my clothes are clean. Have you bathed? Do I know that you bathed? These are clean. I don't want to send them back to the cleaner. But no, it was a very good time. And Doug was there. And also Miss Jennifer. And that is Jerry and Patty's daughter. She was there. And usually we just barb with each other, but uh, it was actually a low-key evening. She only almost fell out of her chair once trying to get into a picture. And I'm sitting in the photo. You can see me lean and it's like, okay, her chest is too heavy. She's about to fall over. I've just had surgery. It's all hands for yourself. And I was just backing up. Stay away. Stay away. Don't touch me. You wouldn't catch me. No. Hell no. Well, what type of friend are you? And I said, one that's worried about his health. That's where it's at. And late in the evening, the golfer, as he refers to himself as Mr. Ford, made an appearance. So it was a good evening, and we did have our normal servers. Tabitha was there, and then uh, as we left, Janet and Tracy were out front. I hadn't seen Tracy in, I bet, at least a month, if not six weeks. But then she has had issues going on at home to be dealt with and intended to, which we've all been there. We can all relate to that. And we go from there. So, you know, if you're looking for a good steakhouse, they have two locations, one on Lover's Lane over in the Highland Park area. And the one I go to is off of Harry Hines and Regal Row. Good food. If you have comments and you want to call in, the number is 888-627-6008 or 323-744-4831. 
and listeners can find the show on the number 631-359-9353. And I know I keep saying this each episode that I need to look into the platinum uh, level on subscriptions. They start at $299-599-999. We need 1,000 subscribers. That's what we're shooting for this month. That's what we need. Need 1,000. Keep the momentum going. That's what we're after. And for the content of two hours of each episode, because I don't consider this a show. I don't have all the cute little music that the news media now thinks they have to have for commercial breaks and the high-class clothes. And obviously, you can tell by the haircut, I'm my own. Hell, I don't know what I'd call myself, but hairdresser, I do good just to wash it and comb it. That can be a chore some days, but it is what it is. But yeah, tell your friends, you were the ones that pushed the show. I do my own marketing and advertising, but just like books that I sell, the readers and the listeners are what push it. Because I remember uh maureen brought up last night a name i had forgotten dr laura and the only reason i listened to her way back when was because a friend had told me about her it's like all right i'll give it a listen well the same thing was with rush limbaugh when a friend said you need to listen to him well i can decide if that was a correct choice or not but uh, that's how the word spreads. Your friends tell friends. And you'll either give it a listen or you won't. But that's how it starts out. Word of mouth is still the best marketing plan out there. Because if you're telling it to people that have similar beliefs and thought processes, then they are inclined to pass on that word doesn't mean they'll agree with everything that they hear from the host, but overall, they're like, hey, he's pretty straightforward. He's to the point. He has dry humor. He actually makes fun of himself at times. What more do you want? Too bad that uh, our news anchors can't seem to do that because every time they open their mouth, all I hear is crap all of by the load. If Mr. Whipple was still here, Charmin would be out of stock. I didn't want to get into the news anchors yet. That's a that's a little farther down. It's just, uh, but yeah, subscribers shooting for a thousand. That's a great number, and y'all can help me achieve that. Herbalife, yes, I'm still selling Herbalife. I've gotten back into it because I am getting ready to start walking again. I pretty well had to hold off of that due to the hernia issue because it would pop out when I was walking and it was not extremely comfortable. But now that that is repaired and we are a week after surgery, we can start doing a little bit of walking. And that will be a good thing. But Herbalife is... uh, my site is Jeff Dawson period 
goherbalife.com slash en-us. You log into that, I'll let you in. You can shop on your own. If you have questions, you can ask me. If I don't have the answers, I will find them. Because I learned that in construction. I didn't have all the answers. Nobody had all the answers. And it never bothered me to pick up the phone and make a call to someone who knew more than I did. I got to send a message real quick. But uh, it's really good stuff. I do a shake a day. And with the walking, it helps. The last time I really did this was seven years ago. And I dropped like 25 pounds in two and a half months. But I've got another medical issue that we got to get resolved because I'm not having those same results. And I know, okay, I've probably got something else that needs to be looked at in the digestive tract. But we'll get that handled. But it still works. It's good stuff. I feel good. And, like, if you're looking for energy, I had a guy the other day that said, hey, man, this is military-grade shit. Give you energy. It's like five hours. I said, shut the hell up and get away from me, Poncho. Just go away. My stuff is better, and it's cleaner, and that's just the way it is. But uh, that, it's called liftoff. Yes, they're caffeine-based. That's why I can't take it. Their herbal teas are caffeine-based. I can't take them. My youngest son and I talked about it. He can't take them because he has adverse reactions to caffeine. But it works. It works. And they're affordable. They're, I haven't noticed price surges yet in any of their products, like we're seeing at the grocery store and at the gas pump. Yeah, let's go, Brandon, dumbass. <clears throat> but it's really good stuff. If you want to get back in shape, give it a try. Give it a try. I always give a shout out to the Woodall Foundation, and this is really concerning them because they have deaf students in Moldova, Moldova Moldavia, in the Ukraine. And they have been posting how their friends are doing. And so far, most of the ones they know um, have gotten out which they're very thankful for. In fact, I remember she posted some pictures. I guess they're in Odessa, like, could have been four years ago. But they really do the work of God. That is a mission. Their foundation runs that targets the deaf. They are sign master sign masters they are really good at it they'll actually do a video every once in a while where it's just becky and her husband daniel signing each other and it's what they love to do and they love to spread the good word so they're on facebook it's the woodall foundation if you got some extra cash and you want to help them believe me 
that's where your money goes to. It doesn't go to extravagances and a off the chart lifestyle. It goes to help those that they want to help in those foreign countries. And especially with this war going on, there is a higher need for housing, food, and shelter of which they are doing everything they can to help their help their friends. They're not followers, they're friends. That's what they are. Book review. I've done this one before, but I felt it was good to go back and look at it again. It's called The Arsenal of Democracy. And the reason I chose this one is during the State of the Union address, Biden mentioned how the $20 billion facility Intel is building uh, just east of Columbus, Ohio, is the biggest investment ever in the United States. Well, of course, my eyebrows went up and I questioned that going, what about Willow Run that Ford built? to manufacture the B-24 Liberator. It only had 3.5 million square feet of floor space. It was a mile long. Now, I could not find, I was rereading the book trying to find what did it cost Ford to build this? I don't know. I know it's somewhere hidden in there. I didn't find it in my review, but that was the largest manufacturing plant in the world. That's right, in the world. No one had seen anything on that scale. And when Edsel Ford made the comment that they would make a bomber an hour, Herman Goering laughed. He wasn't laughing in 45, was he? No. Yeah, it took two years to build that plant. It didn't really go online until 43. As was the case with a lot of our mass production manufacturing companies. They had to gear up. They had to retool. They had to retrain. And when you think about it, Ford hired 100,000 workers just for this. And they're building engines also. It's, they, they just weren't building planes. They built all types of armaments for World War II. But this one plant, hundred. can you imagine 100,000 people? And then you have to house them. And that's what, you know, World War II made Detroit the motor center. It made it this industrial magnet. Yeah, the autos were taking off. All the big dealers were there, Chrysler, Chevrolet, Ford, Dodge. They're all there and they're doing well. But let's just say World War II propelled them to the top of their game and Detroit to its zenith of prosperity. That's a good word, zenith. I like that. 
I like that. But, so I'm trying to find this comparison. Now, they're touting this as one of the greatest cooperations between private industry and college because Intel is also setting up $100 million for the local colleges, including the Ohio University, to set up divisions that are going to just focus on, if you go through this program, you're going to go to work for Intel. Well, everyone, of course, in Congress on the left, just oohed and odd. Well, this is not a new concept. This is what happened in Arlington with the GM plant. There's a college over there, University of Texas at Arlington. It was designed for that specific purpose, to train engineers that would go to work for GM. Why was this concept lost? That's the real question. Why was it lost? Well, you can call it greed, you can call it stupidity, or you can blame all of these Ivy League and top 100 business schools for dropping the ball, which they're really good at. I mean, they're the ones that came up with companies need middle managers, and then you came up with the, God, what did they call those farms? The uh, partition farms? I thought that was the dumbest idea I ever ever seen because the first time I saw it used was at the city of Dallas when they moved their people from Mockingbird down to one of the worst parts of Dallas on Jefferson Boulevard and had these partition farms or whatever the hell they called them. Whereas before it was wide open. The engineers had massive drafting tables. Yeah, this is before computers really started taking over and you came up with all the great software and graphic programs where you do it on your on a computer. But it was an open area. It was very cordial. You got to meet all the engineers and they set up all these walls around the place and you can't even find the person you're looking for. And usually they're hiding from you because they see you walk in so they duck into someone else's cubicle, cub, cub, cubicle farms. I believe that's what they called them. What a ridiculous, idea, stupid idea that was. But look at all of the money that people made off of stupidity. It's pretty, pretty scary. Yeah, I'm not going to use that word. Not going to use it. But uh, Arsenal Democracy really gives you a look into how American manufacturing took off. So what we heard at the State of Union is not new. I mean, look at all the facilities that Microsoft built. Look at the partnership they had with IBM on the hardware. That was a, uh, oh, what's the word? to come to me, but it was all tied together and it worked and Bill Gates became one of the richest men in the world. And now people hate him for that. Well, you know, I can think of a lot of 
the big companies in construction, Morris Knudsen, Kiewit, H.B. Zachary, Brown and Root, they started somewhere. And then they worked their way up. They became very profitable. They made good moves. But I'll say this much, which I'm sure they did, if they beat up their subs on the way to claw to the top, then, yeah, there's a special place in hell for them. Because I'm getting close to another topic here. But it's a great book, Arsenal of Democracy. Highly recommended. But the point is, is... The biggest manufacturing plant was built in 1941. And when I, if I can find the figures on what it cost to build Willow Run, then I'll see if I can convert it into today's dollars and see how they would set up side by side because I'm just curious. I mean, I think it's great that Intel is building a new plant in the Rust Belt. NASA got to stay sustainable, and that's always the key. And hopefully, with the help of the colleges, this works out like it did for GM and Arlington. And the latest book release is Roadkill. If you're into a lot of people getting killed, that's it. I've lost count how many people die in this book. But, you know, when you've got, think of it along the lines of the movie Scarface. But it's not as long and it's not as drawn out. And you don't have a hot Michelle Pfeiffer walking around. But you've got the blood and guts. You've got the roadside executions. I mean, the cartel's moving into Tulsa, Oklahoma. They're trying to lay new ground. And a lot of people got to either get on board or get the hell out of the way. So that's the way it's going to be. And I did enjoy writing. It was fun. Is it some great novel? No, it's just hardcore bad cop taking out opponents with a couple of twists through the story, which I always enjoy adding in. So if you haven't read it, it's up on Amazon along with all my other books at Jeff Dawson. Baseball update. Now I'm going to throw some numbers out there first before I even get into what they say is the crux of the problem. But there was a tweet that came out. Now, before I read the tweet, I'm going to give you the numbers. Minimum salary is $570,000 a year. The average salary is $4.17 million. On the top 20 salaries, the biggest one, it goes from 37.2 to 25 million. You got 20 players in that bracket, okay? Now, this was the tweet from the center fielder of the California Angels, Mike Trout. 
I want to play. I love our game, but I know we need to get the CBA right. Instead of bargaining in good faith, MLB locked us out. Instead of negotiating a fair deal, Rob canceled games. Players stand together for our game, for our fans, and for every player who comes after us. We owe it to the next generation. My ass. This is coming from someone who makes $37.2 million a year. You really think I'm going to listen to him when he says, for our fans? Fans don't give two shits what you make. They want to see your goat-smelling ass on the field. That's what we want to see. The players who come after us, so 570000 a year isn't enough. You have a problem that uh, you don't like the three-year arbitration deal that a player should be able to do it after two years of service. Well, that'd be like, and I'll just use Patty as an example, when she worked for, uh, I think it was Xerox. So if she works there two years, then she should have been the CEO of the company. I don't think so. But they want CEO pay after two years of work. Now, we know, at least those in the know, that television pays these salaries. Attendance helps. Attendance is really for the concessionaires and the other stores and restaurants and stadiums now. Because if you added it up, the Rangers do. Two million in sales, then come up with an average price and multiply that and see if that covers the player expenses. It doesn't. And if you're only and if you're drawing under a million, you sure can't pay the bill. But this group that I'm a member of on Facebook, MLB Dugout, that is just infected with liberals because all they're doing is blaming the owners the owners didn't do this the owners didn't do that well the owners are paying 20 guys from 25 to 37 million dollars a year what the hell more do you want you tell me I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I don't give a damn if they come to terms or not, and I'm glad that my good friend Bears isn't here to see this because he would be fuming. And when he would get on a rant and a roll, there's no stopping him. And I just have to sit there and listen to him. Just carry on and carry on. So I don't care. I'm really going to miss it. I'll go find Little League games somewhere. Or, you know, when Oklahoma State comes down to play TCU, if the weather's actually good for a change, I'll go watch that. But, you know, it's the same shit every time they strike. It's always the owner's fault. Okay, let's just get rid of the owners. Now who are you going to play for? Those 
filthy rich owners. And you saw that in the State of Union address when Biden was talking about corporations and all these people booed. Uh, those corporations are the economic engine of this country, you dumbasses. But I've got another, I'll have another thought on that when I get into the State of the Union remarks. So MLB, I don't give a shit. Manfred, I don't care. Daniels, I don't care. I suggested a while back, they need to go find two people off the street, buy a pizza, give them the issues, throw them into the room. And when the pizza's done, they come out with an agreement and say, sign it, start playing. But that would be too simple. And neither side would probably like it. Well, too damn bad. That's what's called a negotiation. But the MLB Players Association has never given in on anything. Hell, they canceled the World Series in 94, and I have not forgotten that. That was such crap all up. Over what? A bunch of bullshit. Okay. Enough of the MLB. News pundits. Oh, God. I, I, I get constipated when I watch CNN because all of those girls, they need to get laid or something. They never look happy. They always look like they're PMSing or something. It, it's just not an attractive sight. But Fox, they're, they're, they've gone off the rails. Bill, I think Bill Hammer made the comment that the Kiev looks like nuclear fallout. What did you say? Have you not seen pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Obviously not. And your, your amount of historical knowledge is, it's not even thin at best. It's just non-existent. Nuclear fallout? What's that movie with Jason Robards? Uh, the Day After, I think which is really good because it was done in the 80s and it shows what hap what could happen if the U.S. and Russia go to war with ICBMs. Oh, there's another one. The Russians are firing ICBMs into, key into Ukraine. My ass, it's called an intercontinental ballistic missile. That means it goes from continent to continent, not country to country. And most of those are equipped with nuclear warheads, you dumb asses on Fox. Again, shut the hell up. Your ability to talk off the cuff is horrible. It, they, they have proven they can't do this without a script in their hand or a teleprompter stamped in their forehead. Because when they start talking, you find out how ignorant they are, and then look at how much money they make. And that's appalling. It's appalling. The only one I like that Fox will bring on is Jack King, especially in issues like this. He is a re retired four-star general, but he's not there for the coverage and the glamour and to get his name. He lays out exactly tactically what you should be watching for why they're doing this why this didn't work he is still analytical and i like that and i like what he says because he's to the point no fluff no bizarre opinions 
just the facts, man. Just as Sergeant Friday said on Dragnet, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. We don't get that from our news media today. We get just the BS, man. Just the BS. Because if you give the public facts, they won't be able to handle it. They can't handle the truth, as Jack Nicholson said in A Few Good Men. Yeah, we can handle the truth. That's what you idiots don't understand. We can handle the truth. Why don't you start giving it to us? And we'll make up our own minds. And then it was either Pete Hegseth or Brian Kilmeade who threw out the name Bobby Yar and tried to make himself look so important that he was going down in this rabbit hole studying Ukraine and World War II history. And it's like, you talk and you show how, what a dumbass you are. Don't talk. And there are plenty of my friends that will say he does that. We'll be having a conversation and Jeff will just stare at you and go, you're still talking. And it's like, he just slapped the hell out of you without doing it. Cause he realizes you're not listening. You need to stop and listen and think before you speak and stay on topic. Well, when he mentioned Bobby Yar, it's like, okay. And, and that was it. He said nothing else. What the hell? This was one of the biggest execution sites in the Ukraine. They killed over 90,000. The Germans killed over 90,000 Jews there. And they willingly showed up and were executed. If you've seen the miniseries Holocaust, they show it. They talk about it. Even the Wikipedia article is pretty much correct. But if you don't know what you're talking about, do us a favor. Shut the hell up. It's not that hard. When you have educated yourself, you're more than willing to open your mouth. Now, I don't know if that'll ever happen with Ainsley. She's just there as the female prop because she's pretty. But then she opens her mouth. It's like, oh, good Lord, what is she going to say today? I don't want to know because it's going to aggravate the hell out of, you know, and you don't have to fact check them. If you're intelligent, if you're educated, you can just listen to them. Go, Where'd you come up with that crap? Good Lord. Okay. Next up, the Freedom Convoy in the United States. What happened to it? It's still on the move. Now, you know, there was talk that they were all going to congregate on March 1st and surround D.C., being Maryland, and they were going to have their big protest before the State of the Union speech, which was his second, because he gave one in 2021. Because the news was saying his first State of the Union address. Uh, No, he did one 
in 2021 in like April. How did the media forget that? Or was it his first State of the Union speech since he's been president for a year? Hell, he was president for three months and screwed everything up so bad. We're still trying to wade through all the bullshit. Plus, he assigned what what was the last count I saw, like 87 executive orders, far in excess of Donald Trump. But remember, it was Joe Biden that said in October that a president who signs executive orders is a dictator. Well, you have exceeded Trump in the first year, so I guess you're a dictator and a dumbass. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty, but the Freedom Convoy, they are still forming. And it, from what I saw this morning when I looked it up, they, it's not going to be as impactful as the one in Canada. You know, they went in and took over Ottawa. Trudeau, did, Trudeau didn't care. You got to see the real colors of Trudeau in that. Our governments are in trouble. And if Kerry calls in, that's what he's going to talk about because he is pretty livid over this whole situation. So it's still coming. Okay. Getting stiffed. Now, we debated this dinner last night, and I'm not going to throw out names, but I will say this much. You won't see me mad very often. You won't see me explode very often. But when you do, it ain't pretty. I spent 12 days fumigated my friend's room three times because the roaches were so bad. I mean, his health had turned. It wasn't pretty. He didn't have any energy. And it took three times to make sure all the roaches in his room were dead. And that nothing would wind up getting shipped to the family. And the quest, the issue here is what is your time worth? Now, he was a good friend. And when he went into the hospital on the 23rd, I thought, okay, I'm going to go in and start trying to clean his room. So when he comes back, it's, it's in a lot better shape. Well, he didn't come back. And then the press, the push was on. The family in California couldn't come out. The family in France didn't come out. Nobody came out. Yet I had a phone discussion a couple of nights ago where I can get on a plane and be in the United States tomorrow. Then why weren't you here for your uncle? But it took 12 days. 16 bags, large trash bags of trash. Sorting through three to four years of mail to make sure nothing of value got thrown out. Going through briefcases, going through suitcase, going through everything, just like I did with my parents. Let's keep what's valuable, but if you if you don't go through everything, you're not going to know. And I sent them a bill. They said they would compensate me for my time. And I said, okay. I didn't know what this was going to run. I had no idea. Well, when it was. And I also knew there was a deadline, and that was January 7th, because that's when his rent would have been due, which was 
about $800. I beat that by two days. I mean, it, it took, it really took 12 days. Now you think there's no way it's a hotel room. Well, you weren't in there and I was. And then decide what goes to goodwill, what is still good, what can be given to friends that he admired, that he appreciated, that would enjoy it, that would benefit from it. So when it was all said and done and everything was shipped to California, they called and said, so what's the fee? And I struggled with this. I talked to friends. I talked to family. And I decided my time was worth $250 a day. I came out to $3,000. And I also figured out what it would have cost the family to come here and have done the same thing. And that came out to like, depending where they stayed, the time they spent here, about $5,000. Because I guarantee they'd have hired a professional exterminator before they, once they realized what they were dealing with. And, uh, they just laughed at me. I didn't hear from them for two weeks. So I called them up and I said, what's the status? And they said, uh, we're going to pay you a thousand dollars over five months. And I said, you pay me $200 a month. Needless to say, I just lost. I didn't mind taking, taking care of my friend, but the family said they would help compensate me, that they would compensate me for my time. And then they get the bill. And say, oh, well, that's too much. Well, eat shit and die. And I don't like to be vengeful. I did that years ago in construction where I I met with a guy and I told him, if I don't have a check tomorrow, I'm going to come over to your office. I'm going to kill you and your boss. That's it. You can screw with me, but you cannot screw with my family. And now you're screwing with my family. So if I don't have a check tomorrow, I hope your life insurance is paid up because you will, your spouses will need to use it. And I know I will go to prison and I won't care. They had a check. Now it's not that drastic in this case, but it's easy to say after all the work is done, well, we think that's too expensive. Well, you're going to have to answer for that because bears would have wanted that debt paid. And I will say this much, I am pursuing another issue that he was trying to pursue for a couple of years. And this could could turn into a lot of money. It won't happen overnight, but uh, it's something he went through back in the 90s. That if this happens, since I'm spearheading it, y'all ain't getting a fucking penny. And you won't even know about it. And I won't care. Because there is a lot at stake with this. But, you know, getting... I don't have a problem helping people. I never have. I have loaned money when I had it. I've loaned money when I didn't have it. And now I'm in a situation where all that money that I loaned out is like... Or helped somebody with it's time to pay the full bill not what you think is fair or when you think it's fair now's the time because i think that's up to like last time i looked like 20 grand but that's okay 
Not really. So if you're going to help somebody, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I helped bury my partner. And I remember arguing with this family. I'd initially said, I'll pay for Larry's funeral. Well, then we didn't get paid on a couple of jobs. And I could only come up with half of the money for the funeral. And his brothers called up and said, that's all you're going to pay. And I said, what the fuck? There's six of you. Are you telling me that each of you six can't come up with $200 a piece? Get the hell out of my face. I never had any other contact with his brothers after that. And I had met them. Larry loved his brothers, but yeah, here it came down to money. And that's all they cared about. Larry didn't have anything either. He had a house in Seagoville, which I, I guess his son and his daughter split the process. I don't know, but you know, I did everything I could with him. I did the same thing, obviously, when I went home and took care of my dad. When I took care of Debbie, I took care of Barry. So I've buried plenty of people and I've helped get their affairs in order. So if you're one of those that winds up getting involved in this, but it's not a relative and you want to help them, I guess what you have to do is say, yeah, I'll help you do this, but it's going to cost this and I need to be paid now. And that shouldn't be the way it is. But sadly, that seems to be the way it is. I did a service to you. I didn't have to. Because if I wouldn't have done this, once the hotel found out that he had passed, you got three days to get your shit out. And if it's not out, they'll get it out. So all the valuables, all the photos, everything he had in there that wouldn't have been picked up with a five-finger discount would have been thrown in the dumpster and the family would have gotten shit. That's just the way it is. I miss my friend, but at one time I wanted to go out for his service. No. If this is how they treat people, especially that aren't Armenian, I have no desire to meet any of them. You know, you get all these messages while this was going on, we're so thankful for this. You're such a saint. You're this, you're that. And then it came time to pay the piper, and all of a sudden, he got real quiet. And these people aren't poor by any stretch of the imagination. His brother died recently, and he was a top doctor in his field. So money isn't an issue. But there you have it. Okay, speaking of health, as I mentioned earlier, I had my hernia surgery. Now I want to throw some numbers out there. 10.39, 8.88, 9.11, Men, you know what those numbers are? Those are PSA numbers. And they tell us that we need to be under four. And that 10.39 was a year ago. I did the biopsy. They found the cancer. Early stage, I did the SBRT treatment. I had a video on it on Facebook of how much fun it was doing the preparatory work and to the point that uh, when I saw Jerry and Patty at dinner, that's been back in November, Jerry was just cringing on, man, 
you didn't have to get so graphic about what they did. And I said, well, I'm just giving you a heads up what to expect, just how much fun this is going to be. He was like, that was just painful. I, I just couldn't listen to it all. I said, drink another Dos Equis. Life will be good. He was like, yeah, it is. So I went through all that. I got my little participation trophy or certificate that you completed the course. How exciting. And I went in three days ago for my follow-up PSA test. And the Dr. Garant, Aurelio Garant, who is very good. I really like her. She said, you'll see a change in the numbers, but it probably won't be drastic. You know, it'll probably be six and then it might go up and then, it, but we're going to watch it to see if it keeps going down. I looked up the test result on Thursday, 1.18. As my oldest son would say, bam. How about that? They got it. That's over a seven-point drop from the summer. Now, obviously, there will be follow-ups. But that's okay. I can deal with the follow-ups. So that is good news. So health-wise, we are looking good. Okay. Okay. Now, if you got thoughts or comments, again, the number is 888-627-6008 or 323-744-4831. All right, let's see what time is it. It is 2.57. Do we want to... I guess we can start on the State of the Union address, and then I'll wait to see if Mr... If Retired Colonel Smith is going to call in and we'll get into Ukraine since that is his specialty. Okay. Current deficit is $30 trillion. Now, you need to make note of that. Trump added $8 trillion to the deficit. Five of that was COVID. And if you remember the last bill, that uh, last budget Congress sent, Trump said he would never sign another one of them. But then you had the Democrats threatening to shut down the government and all that. So Donald added $8 trillion. Joe said he's going to drop it a trillion dollars in a year. He said that. Yeah, let's see where we're at a year from now, especially with this wonderful rampant inflation we haven't seen since the Nixon era. Robert Smith is on the line. Okay, we can come back to State of the Union later, but let's get, since he is kind enough to take some time out of his day, Let's bring Robert on and talk about the Ukraine. Bring him bring him in, Don. Yeah, I'm already here, Jeff. Can you hear me? Mr. Smith, how are you, sir? Doing well, buddy. How are you? 
I cannot comply. <laughs> it wouldn't do any good. No, it wouldn't. And for the listeners, uh, Robert and I talked about, what was that guy's name, Peterson? Yes. The book. And the 12, uh, 12 yeah. Rules for Life. Yes, 12 Rules for Life. We talked about that. I think it was this last summer. So he is returning, but we have been throwing this back and forth on what's going on in the Ukraine. I know it from the history books. He knows it from being on the ground. 20 years in the Army. Yeah, 30 years in the Army. And uh, although although I only made ever made one trip to Kiev, Okay. That was uh, that was that was more of a staff visit than it was, uh, and that was many years ago. That was in '99, right? But you have but, a uh, go ahead. you have you have a better grasp on tactics than I ever will since you were involved in that. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, reading about it is one thing. Doing it on the ground is, uh, is obviously something entirely different. So I would agree with you on that. It's, a, it's an interesting situation. Uh, I think most would agree that um, pretty much everybody, including the Russians, uh, have been surprised by uh, how slow their advance has been against what is essentially an unsophisticated, you know, uh, defense force military that the Ukrainians have, but they uh, they are really giving the Russians uh, a run for their money. Uh, there's a great website, uh, and I, I can send it to you later. But it takes, you know, there's there's lots of reports of, you know, this many, you know, especially coming out of the Ukrainian Defense Ministry about how much they've they've captured or killed of Russian vehicles and so forth equipment. But there's a really good website uh, that's, that categorizes all of these, but only takes photographic or video evidence. So if you think about that, that, you know, they will only accept a claim if there's photographic or video evidence. And they, they obviously know their vehicle types uh, and they, they aren't fooled by, you know, rubber dummies and, you know, wrecks that are that are, look like tanks that are actually trucks, uh, because they've categorized every type of Ukrainian or Russian, uh, you know, tank type. For example, T-72Bs, T-72BOBR, T-72B3, B3M. You know, so it, it, they really know their vehicles, uh, and they've included. If you click on the, uh, if you click on the the vehicle, it says you know captured. You can actually see the photograph of the vehicle they're referring to, or the video, uh, you know, of an aircraft being shot down, or something like that. It's it's a really well done site, um, very informative. The funny thing about it, though is, if you think about it, it probably conservatively is only listing about half of the Russian uh, of the Russian destroyed vehicles, because if the Russians are advancing and a vehicle gets destroyed or damaged, and they continue to advance, well, it ends up behind their lines, and they recover it or, or they ship it out. But there's no one around taking happy snaps of it. You know, so there's no photographic evidence. So I, I, can, I believe that these, these uh, losses that are listed are probably about half, maybe less than half, 
of what it, what is actually uh, the damage that's actually been done by the Ukrainians to the Russians. Um, and the same thing happens to a Ukrainian vehicle. If it's, if it's damaged or destroyed and the Russians overrun that position, then there's no photographic evidence of that either. Uh, although I think that there'll be fewer of those cases. But the numbers are stunning. Uh, I've been watching this site for a week. And last week, last Friday, and just to give you some numbers here, in photographic evidence of Russian losses were 378 pieces of equipment. Now, this goes down, this doesn't count canteens, obviously, but it does go down to, uh, um, you know, uh, shoulder-fired air defense systems, uh, you know, uh, uh, man-portable air defense systems, and and it doesn't it doesn't include, you know, machine guns or you know any that kind of cruiser weapon, but it does include anti-tank missiles and so forth that have been captured. Uh, you know, by the other side or abandoned or whatever. And those numbers are kind of, you know, kind of odd. But if you look at the, go back to the 378 Russian losses a week ago, of that, 47 of them were tanks. Uh, of that, 16 were, were kills, were destroyed tanks. One was damaged. 20 had been abandoned by their crews, and 11 were captured by the Ukrainians. So if you look at some of the pictures of the abandoned ones, you see why. It's because it's it's rolled off to a ditch and, and, and can't, you know, uh, the crew got out of it because they couldn't move it any longer and, you know, ran for the hills or, or whatever. Um, but if you look at the losses, those same losses a week later, the tank losses have gone up by 31. So now it's 78 total losses. Uh, same thing for armored fighting vehicles. Last week it was 38. This week it's 62. That's that's an additional 24 armored fighting vehicles, infantry fighting vehicles. Last week 50. This week 78. Last week 16. This week 30. And so it's it's uh, it, it tells you that the Ukrainians are not slowing down. They are giving as good as they get, and it includes Ukrainian losses as well. Their losses have not increased as much. Last week, they had 153 total losses of equipment. This week, it's 183. So it's only increased by 30 systems, whereas the Russians have increased, as, as I said before, uh, they've increased 200, 200 systems destroyed, damaged, abandoned, or captured. So it's, it's really one-sided. Uh, and so the, the, you know, the news reports that people hear about how the, the – Ukrainians are putting up a, a solid fight are absolutely true. If, 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 you know, again, equipment has been destroyed, damaged, abandoned, or captured, and there's video or photographic evidence. So I, again, think there's, this is probably, for the Russians, about half true. I would estimate that it's double this. That would put it over 1,000 pieces of equipment, uh, and, and that would fit the tanks. Right now, it shows 78 losses. I would imagine that loss level is probably closer to 200, uh, since we're only talking tanks that have photographs or video evidence of, of uh, being damaged or destroyed. So it's 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 an amazing fight that the Ukrainians are waging, uh, and it, it, it's you know I don't want to say it's and and there's a lot of other things in there that um, you know this 40 mile long convoy uh, that's been you know sitting there for several days um, th I've seen some very interesting discussion and reporting on that um, part of it is 
that the Russians had planned to invade while the ground was still hard, and they waited, and it started thawing. And so a lot of their heavy vehicles have to stay on the roads now. They can't get off on the ground. And because of that, you've got a massive traffic jam. And, of course, the Ukrainians are demolishing bridges, so they can't move forward. Uh, also, that a lot of these trucks, something that uh, truck truckers know, and you, you probably know this too, but we, we know well in the Army, if you do not exercise a vehicle, if you do not get it out and drive it around, and it just sits in, in what we call a motor pool, a storage site, on those inflated tires, the tires get out of round you know, over several years. And not only that, when you, when you start putting a load on, they've been sitting there empty. And now you start loading it with equipment on the back of a truck, you end up blowing tires if you haven't exercised it. The rubber, you know, starts degrading. And so you see a lot of pictures of trucks with, you know, all their tires blown. In some cases, Ukrainians are, are shooting the tires out. Their snipers are. But in a lot of cases, it's just bad maintenance, uh, you know, bad habits that the Russians got into. And so I, I think that's part of the reason for the holdup of, of that, uh, that long convoy. Part of it's because they can't get off the, uh, the roads anymore, right now anyway. And part of it is just, it's very revealing of, about uh, the fact that the Russians apparently only loaded their lead elements with what we call days of supply, probably three to four days of supply, because they honestly believed this thing would be over in three or four days. They thought the Ukrainians would roll over or wouldn't fight much or, you know, immediately want to go into negotiations to give up half of Ukraine or something, and they didn't. And so now the Russians, the Russians run out of a day of supply is ammunition, food, water. Uh, uh, petroleum fuels and lubricants, petroleum oils and, oils and lubricants that you use for your vehicles. There's all kinds of things that are considered in the day of supply, and they've run out. And so now all that stuff, they're trying to push it forward, but they're over these congested roads. So anything that's reaching the forward elements is probably being consumed immediately, and they can't get more forward. I mean, this is this is logistics 101. This this is, I mean, it's 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 amazing. Uh, to, to those of us on the military side, you know, you know, the old saying, uh, you know, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. And if you don't have the logistical support, your, your uh, operational units aren't going very far. So that's it, I think there's a, a, a lot of it in that, especially in that northern drive. I'm not so sure as much about around Kharkiv, uh, but the drive on Kiev, Kharkiv is, is definitely come to a grinding halt because of that. I, the drive in the south, I'm not sure it's having as much problem. But there was something that a retired general pointed out uh, a, a, probably several days ago um, that the units in the south, the Russian units in the south, have worked together. They've worked together doing synchronized operations when they took Crimea. And the ones over by the Donbass did the same thing. They have been working together. But the guys coming in, from the north into Kharkiv, toward Kharkiv, or out of Belarus toward Kiev, neither of them, those groups have worked together before. So their ability to synchronize operations and do planning is very difficult. If you haven't worked with the same kinds of units, if you don't train and exercise with them, this is what happens. So there's a lot of stuff going into this. We're, we're learning a lot of lessons about uh, how truly inept um, the Russian ground forces are. So anyway, I'll sort of conclude my long, you know, windy point there with that. 
Well, I'm just going to ask more questions so you can get more long-winded. You know that. I mean, <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for, man. That's what I'm here you know, for. I, I go back to 1943, and I see the parallel of when the Germans were going to launch Operation Citadel. The yeah, Russians yeah. had three months to get ready for it and built a massive defensive system that the Germans yeah. were just going to have to keep throwing themselves against and, you yeah. know, a battle of attrition. Now, so the question is, do you believe that's what uh, the Ukrainian military did because of the slow progress that they really built up their fortifications? Now, if the West would have taken this seriously and supplied more equipment, obviously not men, because we don't want our troops or NATO troops over there, but if we'd have given them everything to make this just almost damn near impregnable, like the Russians did in 43, do you think they still would have been, the invasion would have gone through? Well, I, I think for uh, there's a couple of points to there. First of all, the, the Ukrainians have uh, dug in and, and uh, you know, completely fortified lines down in the Donbass. Okay. So the Russians did not, did not attack there. Um, and I think they were trying to avoid that. And there were so many other different, you know, avenues of approach um, that they could use, obviously, the direct route to Kiev and so forth. I think the, the Ukrainians uh, probably, and again, this is speculation on my part, um, Ukrainians and the West, none of us believed that Putin was actually going to invade, that the Russians were actually going to invade. We, everybody thought it was bluff and bluster to try and, and uh, you know, to try and get the, the Ukrainians or the West to agree to negotiations, agree to whatever Putin's demands were, you know, without actually having to go to war. And so the Ukrainians, in order not to do something provocative, for example, if we'd flown NATO troops in, uh, you know, U.S. troops into Ukraine before the Russians invaded, which, you know, some people advocated, even though they're not a they're not an alliance member, uh, that would have been the provocation. And so that that was a meet that would have been a provocation that would have allowed Putin to attack. So everybody said, oh, I'm not going to do that. Um, we did ship weapons, lots of them. Yeah. Uh, and they've used them. Quite, they've used them quite effectively. The British also sent uh, a ton of weapons. They have a. Uh, an in-law it's it's uh more of a it's a shorter range uh sort of like the old german panzerfaust uh, although more sophisticated and better ranged and, and and a better killer but the uh ukrainians have used a lot of those uh effectively um and and there's some interesting stories about that uh, a russian reconnaissance unit one of their elite reconnaissance units arrives on the outskirts of kharkiv you know is driven there and there's you know nobody hanging around and they think they think, ah, oh, God, this is going to be easy. And then the Ukrainians just descend on them, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, automatic rifle fire and these in-laws and, you know, two, BR two BDRMs, a tank, uh, and a couple of BMPs burning later. Uh, the Russians have been, that little element's been mopped up, 50 soldiers captured, and, you know, that's the end of that. So, of that particular reconnaissance element. So, the the... Uh, they're getting a lot of weapons from other places, but we, you know, again, 
um, you, we couldn't send stuff in, and the Ukrainians could not do. I, I'm sure they felt that they could not do anything that would provoke or give uh, Putin the excuse that he we all thought he was looking for uh, to do the invasion, the excuse he would need for his home audience and to try and convince uh, other nations that it was, he was justified in invading Ukraine. So you don't want to give them the excuse, and you have to balance that with. Uh, you know, if you're if you're the Ukrainians, you have to balance that with being ready. Um, and so I think they were, you know, they, they, they mobilized the day after the or the day of the invasion uh, and so forth. But their military, I think, was as ready as going to be. and was in it was in fighting positions. But, you know, the, the Russians are well known for their artillery barrages. Yes. Uh, for yeah, you know, for just ham- in fact, the Russians are the ones who coined the term that artillery is the god of war, uh, and they're no- well known for it. And so, I had a nephew uh, in 2017 that was in Ukraine training. Uh, he was in, he's in the army, and he was over there training uh, Ukrainians, and, and they witnessed uh, some of the uh, Russian artillery barrages in the Donbass, and, and said they were just horrific. Uh, you know, how much artillery the, Ru- the Russians would throw at a spot. And so the smart Ukrainians, uh, you know, having watched what happened in, in the Donbass, probably pulled back and established their initial defensive positions, you know, somewhat out of artillery range. Like so the, the Germans, initial Russians. Like the Germans right. did in Silo Heights. As right. Russian, because that was a massive artillery range, but that German general had pulled all the troops back knowing we're going to get annihilated. So we're going to wait for it to stop. We're going to take our positions up. And they held Zukov's dead for three days. He just couldn't move through it. Yeah, that was, uh, I think that was on the Oder River. And that was the German general was Heinrichi, if I remember yes, correctly. Yes, you are correct. Yeah. yeah. And, and he was, I mean, yeah. And so, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, be brilliant to figure out uh, we we do we set up these entrenched positions right up on the border you know the russians will be able to spot it that they because they'll have aerial you know aerial advantage and they have all kinds of informers i'm sure they had informants left and right behind ukrainian lines you know mapping spots and gpsing out everything so the, the ukrainians probably pulled back and waited uh it, it, you know in other positions uh for a more mobile defense perhaps I don't know. I, I, again, I'm speculating on that, but I understand. that would account for the initial rapidity of the Russian advance for the first, you know, 10 kilometers, 15 kilometers, and then suddenly, boink, they're stopped. Um, and so, I, I, I think that would account for a lot of that. And now they're taking they're taking losses. Plus, the, you know, reporting also indicates that the captured Russian soldiers. You have been confused and unhappy. It didn't they thought they started off like there was a training exercise? Uh, a lot of them didn't realize they were actually going to war with Ukraine. Uh, and these are twelve-month conscripts that the Russians have for the most part. This basic soldier is a twelve-month conscript. That doesn't give you much time to really train them in their skills. And the Russians don't train nearly as hard or as often. Uh, or as well as, you know, the nations of the West do, particularly the United States, uh, Canada, UK, France. I mean, we we train a lot uh, because it's, that's our job. That's our mission, you know, to be ready for war. So I'm not sure the Russians, you know, it's expensive. You break equipment, um, you know, 
that sort of thing. Uh, and so I don't think they, you know, they, they've actually demonstrated that they don't do any high-level maneuvers, haven't done anything like that in a long time. And they obviously, when they have done that, they've sort of what we call wished away the logistics issues. Oh, yeah, the tanks and trucks will catch up to us. Yeah, don't worry about that. Yeah, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, again, another long-winded answer. but That's okay. Now, you know, you brought this up earlier about the mm-hmm. terrain. And, I mean, you know, from what I've read, these were some of the – in World War II, these were some of the greatest victories and defeats that Germany inflicted and suffered was this area of Russia because mm-hmm. it's tank country. It, this is yeah. run and gun. Well, at dinner last night, I made the comment that Putin's got three weeks to make this work or he's done because the Raputsta is going to start. And once those rains hit, nothing's going to move in that country because they don't have right. the road network that we do. Now, do you think I'm correct in that statement? Oh, I do. I absolutely do. Um, and, and unless they get another hard freeze, uh, you know, the Russians are, you know, they're, they're really stuck. Uh, and, and don't think the Ukrainians haven't been watching them and preparing additional positions and, and you know, waiting for the, the Russians to try and make their next movement forward uh, if they aren't already. Uh, and, and the Ukrainians just blooding their nose every time they, they, uh, they start moving forward. But, yeah, when the spring rains start, you're They're done. It, it is tank country. You're absolutely right. This is this is you know what's often referred to as the steppes of Russia, right? Yes. Great farm country, great uh, you know rolling grassy plains, um, and and it was great that it's the largest encirclement, one of the largest encirclements of the Second World War. Six hundred thousand. Yeah, Kiev pockets. Yeah, six hundred thousand. Yeah, six hundred thousand in the Kiev pocket, but. Um, you know, that was in August. So when, when the, when the Germans rolled forward, the ground was hard. Yes. Um, and it wasn't raining. It's going to be a different story for the Russians. They have really, really bumbled the, uh, um, you know, the, the planning on this in terms of climate and weather. Now that may be again, because, you know, part of it may have been because of the Olympics, who knows, but, uh, uh, and, and they were waiting for certain days, you know, the birth date of the Soviet Union. I'm sure he expected to have Kiev captured by that, that day. I think that was yesterday, maybe today. I'm not, I can't remember now. But, uh, you know, and then there was Red Army Day, which was last week. So all these, you know, all these significant dates in Russian history uh, have occurred at this time. And, you know, it's all very symbolic kind of stuff, um, which is not particularly meaningful for Westerners, but for, you know, uh, for the Russians and for other uh, cultural groups, it is. Um, I mean, we wouldn't care about capturing, you know, something on the 4th of July. You know, we're worried about the operational reasons as opposed to timing based on an event like that. But the uh, the other thing is, you know, again, the Russians thought they could knock this off in three, four days, maybe a week. And that the, the Ukrainians just wouldn't put up much of a fight. And boy, have they been surprised. They goofed. And so everything's bogged down now. Uh, we're two weeks into this almost. I think we're close to two weeks, right? Six, no, maybe time one week. Nine, ten days. Oh, it's, yeah. it's moving on two weeks. Yeah. 
And, and, uh, and so it's obvious that the Russians were not prepared for this. And the reason I think that they are escalating, um, you know, in, in terms of their rhetoric and talking about use of, you know, tactical nuclear weapons is because they're frustrated. Uh, they, they realize that their conventional ground forces aren't going to do it. it it's going to be, you know, it, it, it only took the Germans 30 days to knock off France, who was a very capable ally. Um, yes. But, but this is, this is a different time. You know, this is, if you can't do this fast, you know, the, the economic sanctions are going to bite the flow of weapons coming in from the West to Ukraine and volunteers and Ukrainian men coming back is going to continue. Uh, they can't do anything about interdicting that, I guess. I haven't seen any stories on, on that. I, although I assume since they still control, not control the air, but they have, they don't have air superiority. I guess they have air superiority, but not air supremacy. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm surprised they aren't interdicting traffic coming in from Poland, you know, heading east toward Kiev. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe they are. I haven't seen any reporting on it. Now that um, you bring up a really interesting question that the, the air war, I mean, mm-hmm. I understand Russia has more planes. When I looked it up, I think Ukraine had a 134 in their, in their complement. Now it didn't say how many were combat, but you know, yeah. take this convoy per se, mm-hmm. there hasn't been a lot of coverage on the air war per se, with the exception of like the first two days where the Russians had airstrikes on a lot of bases and in the cities, which I thought, well, that's just ridiculous because you scattered your forces too thin and you couldn't have done maximum damage. But uh, I don't they see... Have violated, they have violated the principle of mass, that's for sure. Yes, they have. So what do we... I mean, is there really an air war per se going on? Because you're not well, hearing much reporting on it. Yeah, the reporting I've seen on it uh, is, is, you know, and this is anecdotal, but that the stingers have been so effective that the Russians have stopped attempting to do helicopter operations anywhere near, uh, anywhere near the Ukrainians, you know, within three miles, four miles of Ukrainian well, Helicopters, units. I understand, but I'm talking about, you know, fighter bombers. Well, yeah, a stinger will take down a fighter bomber, too. <laughs> they will, but... Uh, you just, I, I've seen a few clips of, you know, a couple of bom- fighter bombers, but it's like, aircraft being shot. Yeah. it doesn't seem like there is this huge air war. I mean, in fact, in the numbers that you quoted earlier, mm-hmm. are airplanes in that? Yeah. If you get toward the bottom of that list, you'll see, for example, the um, uh, Russian, correction, the Ukrainians. Again, video or photographic evidence is required to post right. on it. They've lost two SU-27s, shot or destroyed, uh, two SU-25s. Now, SU-27 is a fighter. The SU-25 is a ground attack aircraft. Right. And then, of course, that, that one great big transport that, you know, that, that monster Antonov, uh, that AN-26 that was destroyed on the ground. Right. Um, and they've lost one Krivak uh, three-class frigate. Uh, that was scuttled to prevent capture. So it really wasn't, it wasn't destroyed, but it was scuttled. Uh, that was probably in Odessa, I'm assuming. Um, but if we look at the Russian numbers, it, the, the aircraft numbers, again, are pretty, pretty low because of that requirement. So the, the, 
it doesn't show the Ukrainians having lost any helicopters. Okay. What it does show for the is that they've got uh, they've four aircraft have been destroyed. One SU-30 uh, was destroyed on the ground. Two SU-25s uh, destroyed in the air. That those are again our strike aircraft, and they also lost an AN-26 transport. I, I don't know where that went down, but it was destroyed. That's one of those great big ones as well. Uh, right. They've lost one, one UAV captured. I don't know how many were destroyed, uh, and they've lost seven helicopters. Um, one one uh, MI-24. Oh, correction. I'm looking at right. I'm looking at uh, is that right. No, that's right. Yeah. So one MI-24 destroyed. One MI-35 destroyed. Uh, two others that were shot down over the water. I think everybody you've ever seen video of that they were hit by stingers and shot down over the water. Um, those, those were either either uh, MI-24s or 35s unknown, and three of the the K-52s. Uh, one one destroyed, uh, one damaged and abandoned. Well, actually two damaged, and, and then they crash land and were abandoned. So, uh, you know, the the air results shown on this uh, this website are are much smaller because it's hard to get photographic evidence, you know, of, of an aircraft unless you see it being shot and descending, and you can identify it. If it, land, if it crashes behind your own line, you can go over and identify what kind of aircraft it was and who it belonged to. But, you know, again, it's the photographic evidence part, which makes which makes this site, you know, very real, but also makes, you know, the uh, we can't record everything. So to put it to put it bluntly, but I think the Stingers and the, the Russians have a pretty good air defense capability as well. Right. Uh, I mean, they they have specialized in it because. Uh, you know, their planned war against NATO uh, would be would be, you know, a lot of fighting for air dominance and and air defense systems play a big role in that. Uh, and the Russians knowing their aircraft are just not as good and their pilots are just not as good as, as NATO pilots and aircraft, uh, even even the fourth gen and uh, in, in, you know, third and fourth gen aircraft uh, perform very well with the hands of a capable pilot. Um, so the Russians have specialized in uh, particularly sophisticated and, and effective air defense systems like the S-400, which they took to Syria, but there's no evidence that it ever shot anything down. But anyway, um, so they, and, and, and there's there's some other stories about the S-400, too. But, um, yeah, the Ukrainian, uh, I think the Stingers is, is what is keeping the Russian Air Force back. They're obviously still doing attacks. I mean, there was there was a video clip today of a helicopter coming in and just getting tracked uh, with a stinger. I mean, they had the whole thing on video uh, and just you know, the whole thing blew up and crashed. And I couldn't tell what kind of I, I can't remember anymore what the silhouettes of Russian aircraft are or helicopters are. It's right. been a long time. So I think it was I think it was an MI-24, but I'm not sure. Anyway, so. What what is maybe curious is you've got this forty mile convoy. That is yeah. one okay, right back to that right. That is one right target. Oh, absolutely! Oh, absolutely! Yeah, and I've been and questioning. I, think... I mean, I understand you're going to have losses. You know that, but yeah. what is the advantage? So if you lose, say four planes, but you can really bottle up that entire convoy because of the terrain, because the ground is, has unfrozen, it's going to rain. That would just kill the entire Northern drive. If you could just bottle that whole thing up like we did in uh, 
Um, what was that? Highway one of Saddam's forces that pulled out of Kuwait and they called it the highway of death. Yeah. Just lit it up. Well, yeah, I remember that thing, you know, there, there, there's been a lot of people commenting on that. Oh, we need to give the Ukrainians A-10 warthogs and so forth. An A-10 warthog would not, would not survive 10 minutes uh, because it requires a permissive, uh, it requires air superiority on your side to be able to fly uh, A-10s because even though it's a great ground attack aircraft, it is, after all, 40 years old. Uh, and so we can take a lot of damage, but even in the Gulf War, uh, the Air Force pulled them back because they were, they were uh, getting so beat up by the Iraqi air defenses. So right. the, 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 the way to take down this 40-mile convoy, uh, the best way to do it would be with, uh, with rockets and missiles, actually, uh, with artillery. Uh, you know, uh, I commanded an artillery battalion, and I tell you, you know, we, we could, it was an MLR, MLRS rocket battalion, and uh, we could dispose of that 40-mile 40, 40 convoy in about an hour and a half. You know, shoot from here, move, shoot from here, move, shoot from here, done. <laughs> you know, and we'd have lunch long way. Um, but those kinds of, they don't have that capability, the Ukrainians don't. Uh, they do have artillery, and I would be surprised if they aren't using it. The problem with that is, if you're using you know, long-range cannon artillery, the Russians will spot it. And again, they will crush uh, any sector that the Ukrainian artillery is firing up. So, you know, unless you're really good at shoot and scoot tactics, and, and I think most of the Ukrainian artillery is towed artillery, not self-propelled. That's not good. That means, yeah. right, right. That, that, that's a death sentence. So that, yeah, that's everybody, you just better leave because hell is coming upon you in about five minutes and no yeah, one. Russian, will Russian, Russian counter battery fire is effective. So that leaves them with a couple other options. They can't attack it by air, although they have used, uh, Turkish provided drones uh, and UAVs apparently to do to to hit certain key targets uh, along the way. They've also been using snipers, uh, which is good. You know, one sniper with the, you know, and, and we had we did a lot of sniper training over there from 2017 uh, to 2020 with them and provided them a lot of sniper weapons. Right. Um, and, and so you know, one round through the engine block and that truck's not going anywhere. Now, you don't have to kill people. You want to kill the trucks. Just disable so, the equipment, and they can't move. Right. They can't move, and they you know, end up walking home. Uh, and so, you know, a sniper, uh, you know, from 1,000 yards, again, kind of close, but from 1,000 yards, can knock off three or four trucks and pick up and move, you know, and then show up somewhere else and do the same thing. I, but I'm not on the ground there, so I don't know, you know, I don't know if they're good covered and concealed positions. For snipers, number one. Number two, I can assure you that the Russians, as inept as they have shown themselves to be, have pushed out infantry, you know, for probably two, three miles, maybe more, on each side of that convoy route, so that Russia, so that Ukrainian, you know, teams uh, with mortars or with, you know, with, uh, you know, shoulder-fired anti-tank weapons cannot get in and get close to that convoy. Right. They know they're not. They know it's a ripe target, so they're probably doing everything they can to protect it, with a lot of air defense set up around it, uh, along, along the along it, uh, and infantry pushed out to keep the Ukrainian hit teams from coming in, uh, you know, and picking it apart. And so, you know, drones, 
uh, are harder to knock down, but but they can be knocked down, or UAVs, excuse me, are hard to knock down, but they can be knocked down because they're usually quieter and they don't show up. They don't have as large a radar cross section uh, that that a, a an air defense radar requires. Um, and so th there's a lot of, there's a lot of advantages to using smaller drones if they have them. Uh, they also can't carry a whole lot, you know, great big payload either. But right. uh, anyway, there, there's a lot of you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff we end up speculating about. I mean, there's there's stuff on the internet you can see, um, you know, where, where a drone is obviously being used uh, or a UAV is obviously being used to attack a truck. You can see the radar crosshairs, they're flying it at night, and, you know, and they're, and they're blowing up trucks here and there. But that's, you know, again, that's just picking apart, um, you know, picking apart this convoy, which can be effective. I mean, if you're a Russian soldier, and you're parked and you've been parked for four days, you know, and you aren't going anywhere and you're running out of food and you realize you're in Ukraine and the Ukrainians aren't happy about it. And they, you know, they just bombed a truck two miles up the road, you know, and then another mile behind you, another one blew up last night. And, you know, that, that it gets, uh, you know, it'll start weighing on their psychology and their morale, which is a good yes. thing. Because you might be next, and you can't do anything to protect yourself. Right, and, and you know the, you know they, they are pulling out their hair trying to figure out every which way to protect that convoy. I mean, because it's been blasted all over the news that it's out there, uh, and so you know the Ukrainians are, you know, they know it's a juicy target. They know that if they could, they could, you know, if they could destroy it in a day or two, that you know that, that would end the threat to Kiev. For it all intents purposes. Now they, get, they, they now let's not forget though that they they captured that airport, and the reason they captured that airport was to be able to do uh, bring in transports with heavy equipment and fuel and more soldiers and all that to use it as a logistics hub. You know, just like the the airports that we had for the airfield, oh, correction, airports, air bases that we had in Afghanistan and Iraq. Same same concept. Of course. As long as the Ukrainians are close enough to that airport and they have Stinger missiles, no one's flying in. <laughs> They're not flying in any of those big lumbering transports. Uh, and that may, may be where they lost that AN-26, was trying to bring some stuff in. And, and, uh, and, and maybe a, a you know, Ukrainian with a Stinger got lucky enough to get that one, get his sights on that one and put a hole in it. So, of course, Stinger will t just take, the engine, take an engine completely off the wing and shred it. But uh, and stingers can be used against ground targets too. A lot of people don't know that, but it's a it's a four pound warhead that uh, it travels about Mach two point six. It locks onto a heat signature. So if there's something hot enough on the ground, like tank engine uh, or a truck engine, uh, it can be used against that. Now it's uh, the four pound warhead is like a uh, it's kind of like a, a very large um, shotgun. Because the warhead, is, as I understand, if I remember correctly, is essentially surrounded by a few hundred ball bearings. So the warhead goes off near an airplane engine. doesn't have to get a direct hit. It's a proximity fuse. It gets close enough to a, to a hot heat source, be that an airplane engine or, or you know helicopter engine. It explodes, and all those ball bearings come out and shred enough of the airplane that it goes to the ground hard. So the same thing can be used it can be used as ground targets as well. So that's the same principle that the I don't know if it's still in our arsenal, but the beehive shells they had during Vietnam. 
sort of. Uh, beehive were actually uh, small darts. They were uh, flesh eggs, and so they had they were they were little tiny steel darts, and they they were fired out. Um, you know, it, it was fired as a sort of a canister round, came out of a tank uh, or a, a howitzer, an artillery piece. Right. Exploded, and all the dark darts went forward in, in sort of a big cone at the uh, at the enemy. We, I don't, I think, I still think we have a few of those types of rounds in, in some of the units. Our light howitzers might have them. Um, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, I don't think the tanks carry behind them or some anything like that, a canister round. But yeah, but it's a, it's a similar principle, yeah. Well, let me ask you a question tactically. If and obviously okay. it's going to be hypothetical, but if they stop the advance in the north, and the weather mm-hmm. turns, and they can defeat that column, do you think the Ukrainians can marshal enough forces and sever off the advances down in the Crimea on the Black Sea? Cut those forces off and then squeeze the ones in the Don base back to the original uh, jump off point and just basically break the back of the Russian army. It, it's possible, but you're thinking of a level of operational maneuver that the Ukrainians have not demonstrated they are they're capable of. A lot of their command and control systems, communication systems uh, are intermittent. Okay, and so it's easy. It's easier for them to defend than it is for them to, you know, pull the units out of the line, uh, reconstitute, rearm them, you know, reorient them to the south, and then and then do a major uh, offensive uh, against the Russians. I would think that the better outcome, uh, or the more likely outcome, will be that the Russians or the Ukrainians completely stop the Russians in their tracks. That at some point uh, there's a palace coup, and Mr. Putin goes away uh, because you know he, he's the one. I mean, he's very much like Hitler. He's the one that's just going to keep going no matter what because his his credibility as a world leader, his credibility as a Russian leader among the Russians, all that is is he's put it all in the line for this. I think it would be an easy victory. And and now that it's it's becoming a you know a slog and a bloody slog at that, the uh, uh, a palace coup is is what I anticipate. And I know that others have said that. I I, I won't say that I said it first, but I did um, before Lindsey Graham said it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's uh, and, and Adam Kinzinger. What I, I think that will be the most likely outcome if the Ukrainians can stop the Russians. Uh, and if the Russians do not opt for tactical nuclear weapons, I don't think they will. I don't think they'll do that. Um, because one of the reasons they were going easy and by Russian standards on the Ukrainian populace, and one of the reasons they didn't attempt to level Kiev right off the bat, is because they, they really want to bring Ukraine or parts of Ukraine back into Russia. And if, and if all you do is go around slaughtering innocent Ukrainians, you're obviously, you know, uh, off the populace. I mean, yeah. did we not see Hitler thought he'd bring so, London to its knees by bombing into submission. 40,000 died and it just made him mad. And then we conduct our air campaigns in Europe and Japan 
and it just pissed those people off. It didn't matter that their cities were obliterated. They were pissed. They're like, we will not, if this is how you're going to treat us, we're not giving in. Does, do they not understand the historical context that bombing civilian populace just stiffens their resolve? I think that's why he hasn't gone to, you know, any kind of massive civilian bombing. There have been some attacks on civilian targets, but I think yes. those are dual, dual purpose targets. You know, like the, there was a, uh, uh, a petroleum farm, petroleum storage site outside of Kiev at some point. And uh, the Russians attacked it and destroyed it. And everybody's like, God, that's civilian use. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, that's dual use. And so that's yes. a legitimate target. It is. Things with power state. Uh, you know, those, those are legitimate military targets. Uh, I don't think that, you know, and I, and I think that the apartment buildings that we've seen attack, uh, I think some of those were, were errant rockets or missiles, um, you know, that, that weren't supposed to hit that building, but were supposed to hit a different target. Which that? And I think that, that, that and, I, and I think that, that, you know, a lot of the apartment buildings that we've seen, you know, those, those were apartment buildings that were probably being defended by Ukrainian uh people or Ukrainian soldiers. Can you hear me okay still? No, you're good. Hmm. So I, I think that's why those became targets. Now that there have been growing, you know, growing signs of Russian war crime, but so far we haven't have any we don't have any definitive proof of them, you know, marching hundred people out and machine gunning them or something like that. That that hasn't happened. And I think that the Russian officers probably under strict orders uh, to not do anything like that that would further inflame uh, the civilian populace against them. Um, so I, you know, I think he's trying to to um, go easy. And, and and the other thing that I've, I've heard, which is interesting, is well, he's only committed thirty percent of the forces that he built up on the border. Yeah, but I think it's pretty much all of his tactical operational forces because typically there's a two to one ratio in the Russian army, tooth to tail. Your tooth is 30%, and your tail that supports it is the other 60%. So a lot of those forces that we saw just raw numbers on, you know, they're field hospitals and support units and supply and repair units and, and all that stuff uh, that's back there. Now, there's additional reserves, no doubt. I don't know if he's willing to commit them yet because he doesn't know where to commit them because the roads are all clogged. Right. So for perspective, sure. since you served, what was the ratio of the support for one soldier in the United States Army? Well, it depends on when, but it's it's, it's typically right now. It's probably uh, well. Let, let me let me back up to the old NATO days. It was probably five or six to one. So five or six support sorts of roles to one combat infantryman. Okay, that's that's number the listeners need to know is that. Just because you got a soldier, it takes a whole lot of people to make him combat ready and in the field. That's correct. And, and a lot of that is, you know, a lot of that is, is stuff that's obviously missing from the Russian effort because they don't have, they don't have enough support and they don't, they're planners. A lot of that numbers for us is not just support, but it's, you know, the, the massive Department of Defense HR organization. And the massive Department of Defense, you know, analysis and research organizations—all all that is part of that that tail that supports the combat soldier. 
but right. the, uh, not just it's not just truck drivers and whatnot, but it's it's a ton of stuff, and that's why you know these these guys, the Russians, have been I, I don't want to call them incompetent, but certainly inept at supporting their own frontline soldiers, and and they can't even do it on their own damn doorstep. You know, we do it thousands of miles away across oceans. And that's because we plan for it, we train for it, we do synchronized large-scale operations so that everybody knows what they're doing. And and we have an all-volunteer force, so we don't have a bunch of angry, you know, 18-year-olds who really don't want to be there. So, you know, the difference between the Vietnam era and current Army. Right. So that, that tooth-to-tail ratio is really key, and it's really absent from the Russians, it, it certainly it's absent from their ability, from their demonstrated ability um, of what they've been doing in Ukraine. Well, now, you, there's a whole lot, of, you know, it's roads, it's the weather, it's so and so on. But that's a big part of it, I think. So, do you kind of look at it in a historical perspective of Churchill's invasion at uh, how do you pronounce that uh, Gallipoli? Where they did everything backwards and got the and the Turks just kicked the hell out of them in World War One. Yeah, the, the British, was... also, the Allies, Allies also telegraphed that they were going to land there. I mean, they, they sent naval parties ashore to look at the beach and everything else weeks before they actually brought the you know the stuff in to do the landing. So the Turks figured it out. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not stupid. Um, but yeah, the, the, the amphibious operations. Well, there's a saying in the military. Um, anything that requires a beachhead, which whether it's amphibious or even a cross river operation is the most difficult operation of all. Now, obviously the, the larger strategic operations of moving two or three divisions from the United States to, you know, the Middle East is a massive undertaking. Yes. Um, but if you're going to land on an opposed shore, whether it's across a river or on a beach, it is the most difficult operation. And, you know, we're one of the few nations that practice that. We're one of the very few that train that. Cross river, uh, river crossing operations, and, uh, um, and, and amphibious operations. We're one of the very few. We're one of the very few nations that has the capability and the vehicles and equipment to do that, and the ships to do that. So, you know, other, other nations have, the Russians have, you know, a couple thousand Marines, but but their their skill sets and their ability to do that, although they executed successfully at Mariupol and and apparently at Odessa, although I haven't heard much from the Marines that supposedly landed at Odessa. I don't know if they're still alive or if they're trapped in an enclave somewhere, but Odessa is still in Ukrainian hands. Um, so the, the Russians have the ability to get them ashore, or at least they, they got them ashore, but it was not an opposed landing. You know, they're, they're pretty much unopposed. Um, otherwise, otherwise the casualties would have been a lot higher. Yes. Because they're, you know, they're significantly, but, you know, the beauty of control of the seas, uh, in the case of the Russians controlling the Black Sea, is that they can, they can pick and choose where they're going to land. And so they can essentially outmaneuver. They can study where the, with overhead, you know, imagery, with satellite imagery, they can try and figure out where the Ukrainians have their defensive position and land somewhere else. And once they get the once they get everything ashore, then it becomes a ground operation. But they got to keep an opponent. But they got to keep supplying them. 
Yeah, that's and the other hard point. And then you get down to yeah. I mean, they've got Sevastopol, so that's a huge port, but that doesn't mean they're able to efficiently load the ships and get them to where they need to go, plus bringing in all the supplies that they will need into the port. Exactly, into whatever beachhead or if they captured a port, bringing it into the port. Exactly right. Continuing to respond, as you remember, that was one of the biggest concerns of the D-Day planners was, and they built an artificial harbor, two artificial harbors. Yep. Yeah, mobile. Uh, but but one of the major objectives was to capture Cherbourg uh, in order to have a deep water port, uh, which you know by the time it was captured, the the Germans had wrecked the port, and it took yeah, like, three months to get back to operation. But yeah, they had uh, they had know. effectively destroyed that. Yes. Yeah, and so we did something very undesirable, which we we did across the beach, uh, you know, logistics resupply, and so forth. But we had we had purpose built vehicles, purpose built ships for doing that, you know, uh, LSTs and, and so forth that could carry, you know, massive amounts of equipment, had a droppable or, or a clamshell, you know, front end with a droppable ramp, and you could do over the beach resupply. But you don't like doing it. It's much less efficient than you having a deep water port and no, bringing that stuff is, in. With- that's still one of the greatest invasions ever everything that eisenhower was in charge of and everyone that was involved in it all the engineering laying the pipelines across the channel i mean the more you look into that it's just that is it's unbelievable how we pulled that off i mean it's funny it it really is and i mean you talk about the uh you know the special vehicles that were built who was that Mm -hmm. uh who was the british designer uh, I don't up, recall the name. You know, he came up with the flail. He came up with uh, having small Bailey bridges put on uh, chassis so they could ford, you know, mm-hmm. rivers that weren't huge, but they could keep everything moving. Crossing anti tank ditches as well. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, the, the engineering and the so foresight that everybody used was just phenomenal. I don't, I don't think technologically we've ever reached that, have we? No, I, I mean, we, you know, um, I, I, if we could do it now, yeah, we could do it now, but it would require the same amount of years of planning and buildup in the UK that this what happened before Normandy when it was when it was Cossack before it became Overlord. Right. Um, the Cossack planners had started planning for a cross-channel invasion in '43. So, and I, I can't remember the exact month, but they, had, they, the Cossack staff came together and started planning in '43 and, and deciding on what they would need. And they had, you know, they had we had a lot of recent experience um, that that gave us, you know, that, that gave us, you know, a lot of, you know, lessons learned. The, the torch landings in North Africa were semi-opposed, but not really opposed. But it, you know, it taught us a lot of things about how to combat load ships. Uh, you know, and, and right. They came into North Africa for Operation Torch. They came straight from the United States. Yes, they did. Uh, and they were, I mean, among them was a car ferry, you know, because we didn't have purpose-built ships, uh, you know, of the type needed. And then we did, of course, the landings in Sicily, and then the landings at Salerno in Italy and Anzio, all that before D-Day. Yes. And and, and then we had the, the experience uh, of the Marine Corps landings in the Pacific, 
although they use different equipment and different tactics and those operations were they were just a lot different yeah uh, because they had to come up with a vehicle that could broach over those reefs which right, the equipment right. we used in europe would not have gotten over those reefs so they came up with those amtraks for the marines that were excellent vehicles they were hobart, hobart was the designer they, hobart's funnies I hope, okay, yeah. Hobart's funny. Yeah, Hobart, yeah. So, yeah, that was the 79th Armored Brigade, the British 79th Armored Brigade that held those funny, you know, amphibious tanks, flail tanks and engineer tanks and all that. And yes. it was it was brilliant. They, they'd gotten their, their noses bloody very bad at DF. Yes, they did. That um, was ugly. Yeah, that, I mean, it's sort of a, a dry run to try and you can take a port. And, you know, that's where the enemy defenses are concentrated because they don't want to give you a port. Um, and so we, we learned a lot about, about seawalls and quality of sand and what that does to tanks and, you know, all, all kinds of things that were learned in the DF operation. Um, you know, uh, being able to put engineers ashore very quickly to destroy obstacles uh, and, you know, all of that uh, came from uh, DF as well as from uh, Operation Husky against Sicily and, and uh, you know, the Salerno landings and so forth. So, yeah, we, we had we had picked up a ton of experience from that. You know, and every now and then there, there'll be an American who says, or, or somebody else, says, why didn't we just, instead of waiting until 1944, why didn't we just cross in 43? Well, because we'd have gotten our <laughs> ass kicked, that's why. Right. The Germans we didn't have... Uh, fortified, it didn't have the fortified zones, but we didn't have the units in, in the UK. Uh, we didn't have the equipment. We certainly didn't have the landing craft necessary to move three divisions simultaneously. Of course, Normandy eventually became a five division initial landing, but uh, originally it was planned as a three division uh, landing. Uh, at one point, it was looked, they, were, they were thinking about a six division landing with a, a sixth uh, zone on the north side of the Orne River. Uh, but, but anyway, that's all, yeah, that's all history, but it is, it is fantastic. I don't think people appreciate what happened there. And, you know, we only had to cross, I don't know, what, what is the, the channel, 30, 40, 50 miles, something like that. We only had to cross that much and we did it under allied air supremacy, air supremacy. So we didn't have to worry about German, you know, aircraft attacks or air attacks. Correct. But, um, the, an, an operation nowadays. You know, people will say, oh, let's just send in, you know, blah, 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 the Marines, the Army, something like that. And they have little concept of how much planning and resources that sort of thing takes. Um, they just don't do not do it. And, you know, when you talk to other uh, military folks about that, it's, it's stunning how much stuff goes into it. It really, really is. It's unbelievable, you know, and to be able to pull off, <laughs> pull off a major operation like that in, in, a, in a matter of, of just a month is hard to do. It's a heavy lift. I mean, we can send in the Ready Brigade, you know, from the 82nd Airborne. They, they always have a brigade, uh, you know, ready to go uh, at, at a time for any international contingency. They're air transportable. They're light infantry. You know, we can move them anywhere a plane can go. Uh, but that's one brigade, and it's okay. lightly armed compared to, you know, if you want to move a heavy brigade, you know, 
a mechanized or armored brigade, uh, that's a whole different animal. Okay. We are getting short on time, so I got one more question. And this was, you and I discussed it briefly. I think we've Mm -hmm. done uh, pretty well covered what's going on in the Ukraine. Biden brought up in his State of the Union speech about these burn pits. Now, can you tell people your experience with them? Because he was trying to say just how many soldiers are dying and that possibly his son got brain cancer because of this. Could you describe this a little more for the listeners? Yeah, so um, burn pits were established at um, remote forward operating bases where you could not, as a way to dispose primarily of sewage, but also of, you know, trash, uh, you know, leftover trash from the, you know, from food, uh, you know, all that. And what it was, was a big pit, uh, and it would be close to the FOB, sometimes on within the confines of the FOB, because you had to protect it, because you had soldiers out there dumping stuff in it. And you would, you know, once a day uh, or once a week, I'm not sure, I can't remember, it depends on the size of the burn pit of the unit, but, uh, you know, soldiers had to go out there, pour a ton of diesel in there, stir it all around, and then light it on fire. And, and let it burn down because you had to dispose of the trash somehow. You right. didn't have septic systems. Couldn't build septic systems out there. They were not prevalent everywhere. Um, they, were, they were extremely prevalent in Afghanistan. Uh, a little less so in Iraq, but again, it depended on where the Ford operating base was and what kind of, uh, you know, what, what resources it had available to it. If you, if you could put together a septic system or, or if there was existing sewer, uh, because it was your Ford operating base was near a, a town, then that was obviously the preferable way of doing it. But we would burn plastic bottles, um, you know, mess hall trash cans, uh, plastic containers. But they also had protective gear for those soldiers, right? Soldiers were supposed to wear. Yeah, they are. They are supposed to wear their protective masks. So they're they're you know it's essentially a gas mask. Uh, and those have, have a high level of filtration, uh, and that should have filtered out most of the material. But, you know, people are people, and I think, I think a lot of soldiers didn't do that. Uh, and there are, uh, you know, there, there are uh, medical issues that uh, in the Army has recognized, uh, the Navy as well, of course, and the Air Force, uh, have recognized, well, of course, didn't have like this, but have recognized that... Um, you know that some of the um, some of the cancers that have come out in soldiers since then, or some of the other afflictions, could be could be attributable to proximity to burn pits. And so, the, 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 I, but it, it, when I was in Kosovo, he mentioned Kosovo and burn pits there. I don't recall us having a burn pit in Kosovo. We had septic. You know, septic systems were 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 dug and used. In Kosovo, that I recall. Uh, so, yeah, maybe early on. I'm not sure when his son, when Bo was in Kosovo. Most rotations, his son was Navy. Most Navy rotations are six months max. Uh, at, a, at a place in Kosovo, the rotations for everybody was six months. So, I, I just can't see that there was any exposure, uh, significant exposure, especially. And his son was a was a Navy officer. And officers don't go down there and stir the trash. You know? So, 
yeah, I, I don't, I don't buy that. Uh, okay. I don't know where his son might have been in Iraq. Uh, he wasn't in Afghanistan, as I remember, but I don't know where he was in Iraq. And again, I can't see, especially a Navy officer. And I'm trying to remember what his specialty was. Was he a public affairs officer? I don't. I'd have uh, to look it up. I don't remember. Yeah, and so you might get, you know, you might get whiffs of how, you know, of a burn pit, you know, being burned and, and it smells nasty and so forth. But I have lots of friends who are actually at FOBs that had burn pits and they're fine. They have, they have no afflictions. I, I, and I'm not, I'm not demeaning or, um, you know, saying that the claims of soldiers uh, of exposure to burn pits causing, you know, uh, various medical uh, conditions. I, I'm not saying that didn't happen. It, it very likely could have. I mean, that's up to the medical authorities. I'm just saying I think it takes more exposure than, you know, once a week for, you know, a month or two months, which is what right. I think Bobot probably spent in, in Iraq. I could be wrong about that. Okay. Uh, Navy well, officers, was... we didn't have very many on the ground. All right. We had Marines, that's... but we didn't have stuff. It's not a job that people would be lining up to do, is it? Oh, hell no. You, yeah. As no. My, my buddy who was a brigade commander said, uh, the guys who got duty at the burn pit were the guys who, who had, you know, it, it was used as, as corporal punishment, you know. Right. If you had screwed got an Article 15, your punishment might be, hey, you got burn pit duty next week. You know, something like that. So, so. this, this uh, <clears throat> yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was not the things people were lining up to do at all. And, and sometimes people threw stuff into the burn pits. I understand that one's supposed to go in there. Uh, you know, old old battery packs, you know, with lith lithium batteries in them. Right. Sometimes got chucked in there. Uh, there. There was other stuff that should not have gone in there that, you know, once it was set on fire, could very well have emitted uh, highly toxic uh, or, or, you know, carcinogenic fumes. Okay. Um, but, so. Well, I want to thank so you for calling in and giving a perspective from the military experience, 20 years, retired as a full bird colonel. 30. 30. 30? 30. Excuse me. <laughs> yep. I'm sorry. But, uh, I mean, I always learn when I talk to you because you did it and I've just read about it. So it's because well, I'm not getting different people. Different people that served have different experiences too. Right. So I, I'm not I'm not the the all knowing source of everything. Well, by a long shot. No one That's is, are story. they? <laughs> True. I mean, did Eisenhower know everything that uh, was going on on the ground? There's no way he could. He relied on a whole nope. lot of people to tell him what was yeah. going on, so he could look at the grand strategy and come up with a plan for everyone. To say, okay, this is what we're going to try and do. How are we going to do it? And now Good. it's going down the pipeline and everyone's got to figure out their plans. And then hopefully when it gets down to the guy on the ground, everyone's been trained. They know their, their job and the execution yeah. is going to go flawlessly. How often, how often does that happen? Never. Never. There's an old saying, no plan survives contact with the enemy. So pretty much, yeah. And that's, that's one of the things we train as well, very much in the U.S. Army, how to adjust off your plan. And you plan for things that the enemy might do that would throw you off your initial plan. 
Yes. Uh, that's called branch, branch plans and, and, and sequels uh, to planning. Okay. So, yeah, we, we, we do that very hard. We make it, in fact, NATO always makes fun of Americans because they think we, we over plan everything. <laughs> we just don't want to be caught with our shorts down. Right. Well, I want to anyway. thank you for taking time out of your Saturday. I always enjoy talking to you. You too, Jeff. And we'll chat through Messenger as this war progresses and see which way it's going to go. Well, well, God help you, Canadians. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, take care of yourself. You too, Jeff. Take All care. Right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Well, that was very enlightening. I really enjoyed that because I, I can get a different perspective. And he did it. He's done it. And he on his Facebook page, he had a picture of him with his artillery battalion, which was really cool. So he gave a lot of good insight. And I know I didn't get into the State of the Union address. So we'll have to cover that in the next episode. Because not much is going to change, but the points are still going to be valid. And we'll probably do some upgrades, updates on how the Ukrainians are holding out. Support the station, become a subscriber. $2.99, $5.99, $9.99. I promise I will look into these platinum platforms that they have to see what all you get there. Because I think that one's $45 or something, but uh, tell your friends, tell your family, hijack people on the highways. I don't care what you do, but get the word out to listen, to subscribe, and let's keep this keep this show going because I really do join it. doesn't matter if it takes two hours out of Saturday. I want to get to the point where we can do this every Saturday. This would really be good. Buy my books on Amazon. Like I said, I talked about Roadkill at the beginning. That's a great crime novel of a drug cartel trying to move into Tulsa, Oklahoma. So all you Oklahoma listeners, it was written for you. And that's all I have. So you all have a really good weekend. And yes, Patty, I was nice to you today. Take care and I'll talk to you in two weeks. I hope you enjoyed our time together. I know I did. Without you wonderful listeners, this show would not be possible. If you want to know more about me and how my brain works, that's a scary thought. Check out my books at jeffdawsononamazon.com. Websites, LDDJ Enterprises and jeffdawsonauthor.site for upcoming releases and teaser excerpts from past and present publications. You can also contact me at Facebook, LDDJ Enterprises Publishing, or email LDDJEnterprises at gmail.com or on Twitter at JeffDawson59. Have a great week and look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Dawson's Domain.